this is our last Pride Month episode. But we talk about gay ladies on and off all the time. So do not cry, It's almost like it doesn't, being gay doesn't go away after June. Astounding. Yes. I mean, you would never know based on how corporate America behaves. You would never know. And yet, like every month is a new month. And that's only when that month exists, that like Black History Month. um, I personally. Islander Month, Hispanic Heritage Month only exists that month. Hispanic Heritage Month gives a real big F you to the system because it's not a month. It's September 15th to October 15th. And I I personally think that's fantastic. It's amazing. I like how I take a little pride as being Hispanic, knowing that like Hispanic Heritage Month isn't really just like a month. It's awkwardly in the middle of two months. I don't know about you guys, but once June is over, I personally am no longer bisexual. That's good to know. Lexi, I don't know if you have that same experience. Uh, Target thinks I'm not, but I still am. Target's pride collection just have feelings, so I'm just hating on them. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Lexi, what are you wearing to Pride 2022? Oh, I will wear a macaw costume made of rainbows because my dream was to wear that to Pride 2020, which obviously didn't work. <laughs> and um, I am currently, though I am vaccinated, hashtag VaxGirlSummer, I am not near friends or in an urban area where I feel I would have a good Pride experience. So I'm not going this year to any events, but I think next year, you know, I'll do something big. I'll go all out. I'm going to wear like a sexy macaw costume because I love parrots and I love pride. And Haley, what's your favorite color on the pride flag of your choosing? Oh, I like a good yellow. I do like, I know you like yellow. It's your it's favorite, my favorite color. color, but I really like the ace flag. The, purple. the ace flag is a good color. Combo. It's a good color combo. The purple, black, and white gray and white oh beautiful i forget what the demi flag is it's the same thing but there's it's a the triangle same thing, but whatever. yeah there's yeah yeah and i'm alana and pride is all year long okay so dear my phone has been broken i'm gonna find it and i'm gonna screen share and and it listeners if you want to look for it you can just go to google the googles and you can look up um you know like hollister pride collection And the item that I am specifically going to be talking about is the Pride Pattern Terry Hoodie. Um, And I'll just share this uh, so my co-host can see it. But if you're interested, please Google Hollister Pride Pattern Terry Hoodie. No. Um, no. So first off, from a design standpoint, (gasps) from a design standpoint, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. It is a white sweatshirt with rainbow gradient text of different words. If you would like to hear the rest of our discussion about Hollister's Pride Collection, join our Patreon. It's an ad. It's a hashtag ad. Corporate Pride. Corporate Pride.
classic lady history disclosure if i say it wrong please send us one of those audio messages on anchor or like something an email with you your voice or something correcting it but i'm gonna try you've been around on the interwebs particularly in the queerer parts of the interwebs like tumblr in 2012 you probably have heard the name julie dobonnier and alternatively you may have heard the name Lamboupon. She often gets tossed around in queer history lists on news sites like BuzzFeed's top 10 gayest figures in history or whatever. She gets brought up a lot. Personally, I became interested in Julie because she was the first bisexual female historical figure I ever encountered anywhere. And of course, that's that had a huge impact on me as a youngin. So without further ado, here's a story of Julie Taubonnier. I believe I'm saying it right, but honestly, it could be it could be totally wrong. Julie's life is a little uncertain and she has almost become kind of like a mythical figure as people adapt her story over time. So some things get exaggerated and some things can't be confirmed or denied, but I'm going to do my best to stick to the things that we're pretty sure about. But if anyone is like an expert French historian or something and wants to fight me on some of these, please feel free to. So we are certain she was an opera performer and this aspect of her life is well documented the records of opera houses where she worked have her name, her stage name, um, La Mupon, and it says what shows she was in. And so like, we know what roles she performed in at the opera. Other than that, things are a little fishy, but we'll go with it. She was born in Paris in the 1670s, either in 1670 or 1673. We're not totally sure. Her father, Gaston, which great name, we <laughs> love to see it. He was employed by the royal family. He worked for the master of horses. Not sure what he did. Not sure what the master of horses 100% does. I assume they raise horses for the royal family. Probably. He was a gambler, a drinker, and an expert swordsman. Because Gaston had no sons and Julie was his only child, he insisted that she get an education, which was super taboo for girls at the time in France, and her classmates were all young men who were destined to serve for the French court. I feel like a lot of our ladies have like a similar story to this, like their parents really wanted them to learn things, and so then they learned things, and then they ended up iconic ladies. It's an interesting pattern that sometimes comes up. At the age of 12, Julie took up fencing as a hobby. At the time, some women did fence for sport, but only against other women. Julie insisted on fencing with her male peers as her opponents because that's who she went to school with. That's who she interacted with. That's who she saw as her equals. And it was in her early teens that Julie took up wearing traditionally male attire while she was fencing. And she became like the best in her class at fencing. She was like the top rated fencer. I mean, that's probably not how they said it then, but she did the most at the fencing. When she was around 15, uh, some art, some articles say 13, some articles say 15. Again, it's that whole idea of we don't know exactly which year she was born. She began an affair with Count Darmognac, her father's employer. And after her father passed away, she married a man named John de Maupin, which is where she gets her stage name from. And he worked for the Count as a clerk. Shortly after their nuptials, after they were wed, the Count set Jean on a tax collecting business trip long term. So he and Julie could continue to have an affair and uh, be hooking up. At some point, she took up another lover, a swordsman named Sarané. And after he killed another man in a duel, I could not find out what this duel was about. I just know that he killed someone. The couple fled Paris. Julie went with him. 
And this guy who is considered the father, quote unquote, of the French police system pursued them. But as far as I can tell, he didn't catch them. And also, what a horrible claim to fame. That really sucks. <laughs> it's such like a hey, cab. I don't know anything about the French system, but Julie and her mans, this this fence guy, this swordsman guy, not the count, because, you know, she has many mans. Julie and her mans, they made money traveling the countryside and working as entertainers in like small towns and pubs and bars. They would go entertain and that's how they lived. They both dressed as men for their act. They did fencing demonstrations and they sang because they were both pretty gifted. They were very talented singers and Julie was quickly noticed and she was offered roles in professional operas despite having no formal training in opera. And it was a really good time to enter the opera scene with no training because the opera scene was at this like pivotal moment where they just needed people who were really good at memorizing shit. And Julie had like a really good memory. So they were like, you can sing and you have a good memory. Welcome to the opera. And while Julie was working at the opera, she met her first lady lover. She fell madly in love with a woman and the woman's family was totally not down for that. So they sent their daughter to a a convent to be with the nuns. I think this is particularly hilarious to me because my grandpa always used to quote Hamlet and say, get thee hence to a nunnery or get thee to a nunnery when someone was being like a hoe in movies and TV or real life. He just thought that was hilarious. So I, I just picture her parents being like, stop being a hoe, you know, be a nun. This is probably the most iconic Julie story and what you may have heard about on the internet, just because I feel like this is the one that goes around with her name. It's like, have you heard of that lady who was gay and her girlfriend got sent to be a nun? But Julie was not down for her gal pal being gone. Gal pal. Wink, wink. Hilarious. So she joined the convent too. And they were roommates. Anyone? Anyone? That's a joke. I don't know if they should. Oh my God, they were roommates. But it's hilarious because Gal Pal's roommates. I I was like, how many of those jokes can I work into this this story? Then the couple plotted their escape because they were reunited and they're like, all right, we got to get out of the nunnery. So Julie put another nun's dead body. She did not kill her. The nun was already dead. She put the body in her lover's bed. She set the room on fire and burned the nunnery down to make it impossible to identify the body. Because they did not have a Douglas Ubelecker forensic bone man back then. So if they found a burned body, they'd be That's like, well, such that- an inside joke. <laughs> listen, please go back and listen to uh, Women Be Comedy with Aaron Keefe, uh, our episode from December. That is inside baseball. But definitely go listen to that episode. You will get Stop that listening joke. to this episode. Go listen to that episode. And then come back once you get the joke. So yeah, the you know, they did not have magic bone science. So they probably wouldn't be able to figure it out. So Julie uh, and her girlfriend ran away together. The plan did not work out, though, because they figured it out. And I could not find any source that tells me how they figured it out because I know they don't have magic bone, man. So I guess someone must have ratted them out or some other evidence appeared that made it clear it wasn't her. Julie was sentenced to death in absentia. She did not testify. They just were like, you die. But the badass part of her sentencing is that the court sentenced her as a man with the title Sir, like Monsieur, which is in the closest translation in English is like being like Sir, like a really polite regal term for a man of the court. So they were respecting her, uh, I guess, as wanting to do the fencing with the men. I don't know. I don't know what their motivation for that was, but it's pretty badass. The government could not comprehend how gay she was. So they were like, okay, sir, we're going to burn you at the stake. It's fascinating. 
Of course, Julie was already on the run and they could not catch her because she is fast as fuck, boy. I watched a lot of TikTok this morning, so that came out of, of that. So she and her lover, they lived on the run for a while, as she did with her other lover. I mean, that's kind of Julie's MO. It's like find a lover, run away, live on the lamb together. And Julie took up professional singing lessons to improve her opera career. And they returned to live with her lover's family. And she just chilled and took opera lessons. She then moved back to Paris to try out for the Paris Opera. And she got back with her first man, the Count, in order to have him pressure the government into pardoning her for the whole burning down of the nunnery incident. Now free of the fear of being put to death by fire for her past of burning down a nunnery, Julie focused all her energies on the opera, and she started an affair with one of the guys working for the Paris Opera to get herself hired as one of the leading ladies. Classic Julie, classic Julie shit, you know? While working at the opera, Julie continued to get up to her usual shenanigans offstage. She once showed up to a ball, dressed as a man, kissed the prettiest lady there who three noble men were trying to get with. Each of the men individually challenged her to a duel. She defeated all three because no one comes between Julie and kissing hot babes at balls while wearing pants. Unfortunately, the king had outlawed dueling and she was once again in trouble with the law. So she fled Paris again and she started her opera career over in Brussels. One time she got so into the acting, she accidentally stabbed herself with the real sword instead of fake stabbing herself. But she lived and she was fine. She was just that extra. She also had a lover in Brussels, classic Julie, but he got so sick of her being too extra for him, like too hot to handle, you know? He offered her 40,000 francs, which is a lot of money at the time, to leave him. She threw the francs at his feet, pulled him off, and returned to Paris of her own accord. (laughs) But how did she return to Paris when she was under pursuit by the government for the duels with the three noblemen, you may ask? She sweet-talked the king's brother into getting her pardoned. <laughs> Classic Julie. She literally just went right back to working at the opera. Maxed out charisma skill. Yeah, literally. Like, if she was a D&D character, that would definitely be... She She has maxed out charisma, and she, she rolls natural 20s um, for pardons. She literally just went right back to working the opera. Like, nothing had happened, and she got all the leading roles. And while she may have been well-known for donning traditionally male attire offstage, such as when going to balls to pick up chicks. Opera records show that she only ever played female roles. And I did see some sketchier sources trying to be like, oh, she was known for like playing like boys because she had a high voice and more men's clothes. That's just not true. Uh, Opera records show she only played women in women's clothes. So get you a girl who can do both. And offstage, she also continued to sweet talk both men and women, hook up with lots of people all kinds of people, and have tons of sword fights. Classic Julie. And after her last opera role in 1705, she retired because the guy who wrote the opera like tragically died of the flu or something right after it came out. And she was like, all right, that's the end of my career. And some historians claim that she led a peaceful life after this, returning to her husband, Jean, and just living with him peacefully. Others suggest she actually went to a convent to atone for her life of sins and pray for the rest of her life. I don't believe either of these. I don't buy it. I just can't see it. It doesn't, I can't fathom it. It doesn't make sense to me, but supposedly that's what happened. Died very young at the age of 37 and her cause of death is unknown. Her place of death is unknown. We literally don't know what happened to her. That's kind of why the end of her life is like so up in the air. Her legacy has had a huge impact, inspiring many creatives 
As early as the 1800s, artists were inspired to create based on her story. She has inspired romance novels, movies, a TV miniseries, and even a very queer musical. Some are more accurate than others in terms of historical accuracy. In case you're interested, I include some clips from the miniseries and songs from the musical in the YouTube list I sent to Haley, so that should be up on the YouTube account as a playlist while you're listening to this, if you want to go find that after this. Disappointingly, it appears it's not an opera, but just like a traditional Broadway musical. Well, off-Broadway musical. Lost opportunity, my friends. It, it could have been an opera. And yes, I'm still waiting for a fantastical, big-budget Hollywood production about her produced in the style of the great, you know, a little bit comedic very diverse cast, fun, funky costumes. I would really love to see that. So I think her and Ching Shi are up there and my two ladies I think really would make a good TV or movie opportunity that has been underutilized. A content warning for Toto Kupen's story, themes related to genocide and Holocaust history. But don't worry, it is a very small snippet that I will do another warning if you want to just go through those small points. Okay, okay, okay. I have found my favorite story of all time. And yes, I say that once in a while, but for now, Toto Koopman has my heart entirely. And there will be moments where I have planned in my head notes where Alana's jaw is going to drop and then Lexi's jaw is going to drop. So opening up this history book to the 1930s Europe, Katharina Toto Koopman was a Dutch Javanese model turned spy for the Italian resistance during World War II. Yes, this badass beauty seduced and fought Nazis. August 1933, Vogue's cover had Toto leaning ever so casually, staring off to the distance with her eyes saying only one thing, I am fantastic. And with this cover, she became one of the earliest known cover models before it was just illustrations and not actual photographs. And out of these few first women, she was also the first biracial and openly bi lady. She was immensely proud of who she was and she would openly speak about her race, her sexuality, and just that she was Toto. As her career grew and just knowing more people in the fashion world, she was among the rich and famous and also learned the secrets among the rich and famous. So like the great example of her of this is her relationship with Coco Chanel, fashion influencer and Nazi. Spoiler for a possibly upcoming episode, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I need, hang on, hang on. I need a second for her. Fashion influencer and Nazi. I mean, it's it's the correct description. It's, yeah, it's totally accurate. But like, <laughs> I, I don't know, like those those two things right next to each other. It's like, and we come to the second moment. I knew a lot of us going to say something. Their relationship started when Toto worked as Chanel's house model, but after six months, she left, citing that Chanel was a bully. But they remained social for a lot of the 30s and 40s. So like, 
in Chanel's world, Toto left on good terms, but in Toto's world, it was, ooh, you a Nazi? And I'm, I'm not about that life. Like truly just call their bully out in public. And in the 40s, she was in Florence, Italy, where she met an Italian resistance leader. Parentheses. Some articles noted that like she fell for him like romantically. And that's how she got involved in the spy game. She eventually said, quote, I thought I could join for a while and then report back from the hotel. But once I was in, I became totally immersed, end quote. And that immersion was in the form of blowing up enemy supplies and connecting Jews and escaped detainees to resistance networks. Amazing stuff. Badass beauty. Unfortunately, the Gestapo detained her in 1943. And this is my pause. And when I say in the next few moments, I'm going to talk about what it was like in the concentration camps that she was sent to and a little bit more about genocide and Holocaust history. She was sent to Ravensbrück, where she, she was not executed, but you were either executed or forced into manual labor. And what we can presume Toto would have done at this camp was mainly move the bodies of those who had died at or around the camp. And there are even accounts of forced sterilization. Toto even said earlier, quote, I would rather have been shot immediately than to endure this, end quote. Unfortunately, the camp was not liberated until 1945. And this is my ending for the camp. Afterwards, she settled down in Switzerland and in London because once liberated, she moved within Europe. Um, She was no longer needed in Italy, where she met and helped her partner, Erica Bronson, run an art gallery, the Hanover Gallery, which actually helped get Francis Bacon's start. And the article called this relationship, quote, where she helped her new companion, lesbian resistance member, Erica Bronson. Glad they didn't be like, and they were roommates, but like they were partners. They were girlfriends. Gal pals. pals. How how does she spell Erica? E-R-I-C-A. My sister is Erica with a K. Well, Erica with a C and Toto stayed together for the rest of her life. I'm going to do this. Wholesome. We love forever love story. Yeah. Erica and her stayed together for the rest of Toto's life, loving art, going on archaeological excavations, donating books. Surprise! More cool stuff about Toto. Toto also donated a bunch of her books from when she studied archaeology and like art history through the gallery she helped to the Institute of Archaeology in London. And they built six villas on this like property they bought with grand gardens until Toto's death in 1991 after she suffered from a stroke. I'm obsessed with Toto. Me too. That's a great story. I'm truly obsessed with her. Josephine Baker was born Frida Josephine McDonald on June 3rd, 1906. Gemini, just like Haley, again, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, which is also June 3rd, 1906, is exactly 12 years before Louise Daniel Hutchinson was born. So throwback to that episode. And from a young age, Josephine was performing. Uh, When she was 15, she ran away 
from her mom's performing group uh, for like a black theater troupe. And then also at 15, she met and eloped with William Howard Baker. I'm not sure how old Baker was, but that's a little bit <laughs> sus. I don't know what the age of consent in Missouri is. They did divorce pretty soon after that, and he's not really important, except for the fact that Josephine took the name Baker and started performing as Josephine Baker. At 19, Josephine left the segregated United States for France to join an all-black revue, which is like a dance group. It was so cool to her that France wasn't segregated, and she didn't have to deal with all of that. I'm sure she had to deal with racism in other kinds of ways, but like it was not as overt as... You are a black woman and you cannot drink from this water fountain because you are a black woman. Eventually, Josephine would become, quote, more French than the French. As part of this kind of touring dance troupe, Josephine's costumes were very revealing. One of them was literally just a tutu. So the look was just like tits out, flamingo feather tutu. And Josephine took to this kind of exotic dancing. That's what it was kind of called at the time immediately. And people loved it. She became one of the most successful entertainers in France, from exotic dancer to opera singer to actress. And it is highly likely that during the mid-1920s, she was the wealthiest Black woman alive. But then World War II broke out, and Josephine's performances were put on hold. Also, Josephine uh, was married to a Jewish man at the time, even though they were divorced in 1941. Uh, and so she was a Black bisexual woman in an interfaith, interracial marriage with a Jewish man. And that just like represented so much of what Hitler hated. In 1940, with the Germans invading on Paris, Josephine fled to southern France. She came into contact with Jacques Abti, who was kind of the head of the French counterintelligence and was recruiting people to be spies. And Josephine was like the ideal candidate for this because her celebrity status could get her into these fancy parties and things. And she could also travel between countries without being like that being too suspicious. And like Hitler was throwing all these things for for his high ranking Nazi people and, you know, other kind of like Nazi allies. And uh, Josephine was not above a little uh, some whining and dining. A little wheeling and dealing. Having sex with people to gain information. She also helped a lot of Jewish families escape Europe by getting them Moroccan passports. And she housed resistance fighters in France in her chateau that was in the south of France. After the war, Josephine returned to Paris and found it destroyed. So she sold a bunch of jewelry that the Nazi officials had given her as like gifts and used that money to finance basically a soup kitchen. This earned her a bunch of French honors that I'm not going to even try to pronounce. So go look at the show notes and read them yourselves. Uh, and I'm just going to summarize a lot of other things because my notes are already long. She hated visiting, Amer visiting America because it was segregated, and so she saw a lot of injustice happening there. So she became an activist for the NAACP and was even one of the few women allowed this source. I think it was the National Women's History Museum said one of the few women allowed to give a speech at the March on Washington in 1963. I don't know how like accurate that was. That wasn't the aspect of this episode, but I'm a little concerned about that. But anyway, at the March on Washington in 1963, she said, quote, You know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you I have walked into palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. She had a string of, in her words, lady lovers, which obviously we love putting the word lady in front of things. And while on tour for her song, I am sorry for my French, uh, J'ai de amour? 
I think it's like of two loves or something. I two loves. I don't know. I know D is two. So while on tour for that, she said, quote, I'm not immoral. I'm only natural. And Josephine adopted a total of 13 children throughout her life. Uh, she called them her rainbow tribe because they were from all around the world, like she was collecting them, but she was absolutely collecting them because she turned their home into like a zoo. I would liken it to the colonial Williamsburg kind of thing where they have the people in the costumes doing the demonstrations, except like these were real children doing their real life thing. And that was kind of fucked up. It was also a massive money pit and she lost everything, including the chateau and fell on really hard times until 1975. Former First Lady Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis teamed up with expat-turned-British royalty Princess Grace to finance a comeback tour in Monaco for Josephine Baker. Opening night, April 8th, 1975, ended with a standing ovation. She was back. She was beautiful. Everyone loved it. It was incredible. Four days later, April 12th, 1975, Josephine Baker died of a brain hemorrhage while reading the positive reviews of her performance. She is buried in Monaco and is the only American woman to have received a funeral with full French military honors. She only lived for like 60 something years. And yet she had 13 children and was married like five times that I didn't cover because it's not really important. Was married like five times and also fought in World War II and wild, wild and crazy life. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, Garage Band, and Amelia Earhart. And Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. week our lady history it's our july 4th episode and we're going back into the past of the revolutionary war with the founding mothers